Hey all, Michael Saramella here, and welcome back to the STAB Podcast channel. Today you're going to listen to something a little different from our typical weekly news segment on The Drop. Every Thursday, we're going to publish a long-form interview-style podcast from different surfing regions to support our new No Contest series, which is produced in conjunction with Red Bull and available to watch for free on Red Bull TV. Ashton Goggins will lead these discussions with surfers and tastemakers from around the globe, including places like Fiji, Italy, Costa Rica, and beyond. For our Stab Podcast regulars, do not fret. We'll still be publishing our normal episodes of The Drop every Friday to discuss weekly surf news and competition with Buck, Stace, and myself. But for now, it's over to Ashton. Enjoy. It's like everybody hated that's, him back then. That's natural. <laughs> no, seriously, we natural. hated him. Like, I was, I was yeah. like in the Herzliya group. Like, um, there was like, a, like, back then there was like, Herzliya was like Herzliya surfers and that's it. And it's like Natania was like Natania. And but Tel Aviv was, was Tel Aviv. I would surf and, everywhere. And Arthur used to like, come surf everywhere, but, but um, so he used to come to Othelia and, and, and like, just like, get into the session and like, paddle straight into the lineup and, and it's like, sit there and it's like, talking with everyone, it's like, oh yeah, like, what's up, like, blah, blah. it was like, and everyone's like, behind his back, like, I'm gonna fucking kill him. <laughs> but look, yeah, now we're friends. Hello, and welcome back to the No Contest Off Tour podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to the new Stab and Red Bull Media House series. I'm Tyler Brewer from the Swell Season Surf Podcast, and we are again joined by the director and show host of No Contest Off Tour, Ashton Goggins. Ashton, we have a really interesting episode here. Uh, We go to a place that uh, is not really on the surf map for a lot of people and not always expected to see such a thriving community of surfers. Um, let's tell our listeners, where did we go for this episode? Uh, we crossed the Mediterranean. Uh, well, I should say, yeah, we'll start this one off. We crossed the Mediterranean from Italy and flew into Tel Aviv to see what I'd been hearing about for years about how there was this thriving surf scene in Israel. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, so you, you flew into Tel Aviv and what is the surf culture like there? Like what defines it? What sets it apart from other surf cultures that you found? It didn't, what was surprising to me was that Tel Aviv felt super familiar. I was expecting it to be super foreign and strange and sort of capital O other. And the experience that we had flying in and being sort of given a proper tour from a a guy named Arthur Roshkovan and a gentleman named Yazi Zamir. Arthur is one of Dorian Doc Paskowitz's sort of apostles. Mm. And Yazi Zamir is the president of the Israeli Surfing Federation, is the man who's responsible with bringing the World Qualifying Series to Israel with the Netanya Pro, which has been going on since, I think, 2016 or 2015. I can't remember when the first event was. But it's, you know, they've had an international field of surfers come and compete in Tel Aviv for the last few years. And it's really, it's exposed a lot of surfers from around the world to Israeli surf culture, whereas for a long time, I think most traveling surfers will have encountered Israeli surfers around the world, because I think that, that 
you know, I think between Australians, Brazilians, and Israelis, they're sort of in neck and neck for the most traveled surfers out there, or the, the most commonly uh, encountered surfers internationally that you run into wherever you go. And so I'd made a lot of friends who are from Israel, but I'd, you know, never had any inclination that I would ever be able to go and see what sort of Tel Aviv surf scene looks like. And Arthur runs a surf shop called Clinica Surf right on the beach at Hilton Beach where Doc Paskowitz first came and brought the first surfboard to Israel in 1956. Wow. Which was a year before surfing was even introduced in, say, France, um, which everyone always says started in 1957. And so, uh, Doc came there for to fight in the war and was told that he couldn't go surfing and was like, fuck you. <laughs> Took his board down to the beach and went surfing, and there was a couple of lifeguards that were down there. And so through them, he, you know, got them involved and shipped back a few boards and sort of, you know, planted the seeds for the scene that you see in Tel Aviv today. It's wild. And, and so like Arthur has been like, uh, he's been kind of the, the, I would say like the godfather of surfing in, in Israel. No, like it, he's like the one champion it. I've, I've heard over the years. Yeah, they call him the kingpin. Uh, <laughs> he runs the Tel Aviv Surf Film Festival, which started in 2018, I think. And the same thing, you would you would think, oh, like that's cool and like a novel idea. They have a surf film festival in Tel Aviv. And then you see how big of a crowd that they draw in that city. They've got 3,000 people wow. in old Jaffa watching you know, Nate Fletcher's documentary or Morning of the Earth on you know weekday afternoon it's incredible well i loved your conversation with arthur he is a wealth of knowledge and information and i love how he breaks down all the different breaks in the history uh so i think our listeners are going to really enjoy this little clip uh with arthur so that's a nice left-hander yeah so one two Three, that lifeguard tower, Doc, comes in in 1956. So that's, that how, that's how the story goes by Doc, okay? Yeah. He came here in 1956 to join the war. He didn't come here to surf. Yeah. But he brought a surfboard with him. So he went into an interview at uh, Kiryat. Kiryat was the army base that everybody gets recruited. He told them, I want to join the war. That's why I came here for They told him, you think you're John Wayne, better go back to Hollywood. So he got really, really pissed and said, fuck it, I'm going really? surfing. Really? They wouldn't let him? They didn't let him. He wanted to be a paraclipper. They didn't let him. He got pissed, said, fuck it, I'm going surfing. So it's called Freeman Beach, exactly that lifeguard tower. He went out and all, you know, and instantly became the town hero. The two lifeguards there, Topsy Kantsapolsky and Shaul Zinner, were the guys at working. And they saw him like riding a wave and that then, you know what a fasake is? That big original stand-up paddleboard it's like it's a huge piece of fiberglass yeah. and that's how they work here till today yeah, yeah if we're going to be on the beach you'll see that's it Those it's a huge boards. yeah huge piece of fiberglass so they were riding it then but they saw it on a little piece a huge maybe a 10 foot long board you know and then they grabbed it started surfing and that's where surfing was born in 1956 right there in that beach Juliet. Sure. 56. <laughs> 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 so that, no that's comment. where surfing started in 56, <laughs> right there. It's, like, it's, it's the third break. Till today, it's a really fun break in the winter. Still works, yeah. All this stretch, 
And Doc brought two balsa boards in there. He brought one board, and then he sent six more boards. That the, the boards I showed you in the photo. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. One surfboard. So yeah, this stretch Changed goes the entire coastline. One surfboard. But again, it wasn't just one surfboard. Just one surfboard and a very special guy. A very special guy that kept nurturing surfing like a baby till till the day he died. Seriously. He kept coming back here, bringing boards, connecting us to professional surfers, helping surfers when they were abroad. No way. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I feel like that's like, yeah. more than whatever that impact was, it also, that's what you guys have done. You and Yossi and everyone, you guys have picked up that spirit of being ambassadors for Israel through surfing. Well, um, it doesn't really suffice just pushing a sport. Well, and for us, there's we we are in love with it because of the lifestyle attached to it. Yeah. Of course, we all love surfing, and we really want to get barreled. But you know, there's something more to surfing, and there's a history, and there's heritage, and there's values to surfers. That you know, I got through Doc, and of course, through the people I grew up with, and you know, friends like Yossi. That Yossi brought so much. Also, you know, like you say, he brought so much influence and connections when he moved back from Australia. Yeah. This is like you say, you know. You keep filtering all the connections and power and love you have to a little world you call surfing. So yeah, I think I think there's much more heritage to to pass on to people, especially today when it turns into a sport. But people need to understand those certain very specific roots to our lifestyle. Yeah, true. This is a beautiful left hand. Yeah. I'll show you a video. Like on North Wind, this is super yeah. fun. When did they build all these little breakwaters? Seventies, early seventies. Yeah. And the thing is, what's interesting is it's another story. So the surf community of, of, of Tel Aviv in Israel would be in Friesman Beach. They had a little shack where they hide all the boards and just hang together in the 70s like hippies. So they started building all these and the jetties. So Friesman wouldn't be the same wave anymore. So Neil Kansapolsky and Salome, Neil is the son of the lifeguard. Yeah. He went and looked for another spot to surf in. And that's how they found something. Ah. Yeah, it was a sewer. And it was still open, they didn't have a jetty there, and the wave was really proper and steep. Yeah. So he would surf there alone for the first period of the 70s, and that's where the, the scene moved over the Hilton Beach. From that little world, all these incredible characters have sort of coalesced around that scene. I mean, Arthur was super, super kind and generous with his time and brought us to meet probably five or six of the most interesting characters that I met the whole season, in my opinion. What makes them stand out? Who are some of these people? Um, we, we went and met up with Anat and Noah Lelior, who are two sisters who grew up in Tel Aviv. Uh, Anat was the first European to qualify for the Olympics at the ISA Games in Japan wow. and surfed on the Israeli team. Uh, so we went to hang out with Anat and Noah Lelior in old Jaffa. Uh, they took us to what most people agree is like the best hummus in <laughs> Israel, which even though hummus is, I think hummus is from Jordan originally. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's as fiercely debated as say, I don't know, burritos in California or pizza in New York. Uh, yeah. Anat and Noah took us to Abu Hassan, which is one of the longest operating hummus joints in old Jaffa. Well, nothing better than uh, 
discussing surfing over a plate of pita and hummus. And uh, here's your conversation with Noah and Anat. When you say Tel Aviv, there is Jaffa Tel Aviv. People say it's two parts, but it's mainly, it's, it's a one place because in Tel Aviv, it's more of the mainstream, you can call it more in New York. And Jaffa is more like, in between, you have like more Arab people, you have more uh, Christian people, it's more, it has more variety. And I feel like you have more quiet here. Um, but food is pretty much very diverse around all Tel Aviv, Yafo. And you can get good Italian food, you can get good Japanese food, you can get good Thai food like you ate yesterday, or um, Mediterranean food, Lebanese food, Israeli food, like. I think you have so much, but Polish food, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I feel like we grew up on such a diverse um, environment, um, and we're um, like we're good with spicy food, and we don't mind trying new stuff. And I feel like the the neighborhood, like, like being exposed to different kind of peoples, and. Um, to be honest, like, um, I feel like it's, we're very affected by the U.S. Uh, in many ways, um, but unique in, 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 in some ways, too. Like a lot of international Yeah, 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 there's a lot of tourists, like, we don't look like Israelis, like. Every time we go to a restaurant, they always bring, like, an English menu, and like, a na 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 we specifically, uh, us, because we're blonde and white, yes. <laughs> we're half Polish, half uh, Austrian, half, um, uh, we have a little bit of laziness, uh, uh, and it's pretty mixed up. Um, so we don't get treated uh, differently. Uh, we always get treated nicely because of how we look, but once we open our mouths, we're just like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, when they really go out, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, I don't know if somebody knows, but um, as a citizen or as a kid in Israel, after you finish uh, high school, you have to go to the army. People thought when, like, after high school, when I was in the army, I was killing the people in the army with guns in the room, but. The army is so much more. It can be an office job. It can be like um, cleaning, everything. But after high school, girls have to serve two years, and boys have to serve three years. Um, you have to do it. It's mandatory. There are some ways um, you cannot go um, if somebody saw like Big Wednesday. I mean, you see the movie when they when they try to like avoid the army, and then. So most of it is true, uh, but <laughs> it is what it is. You have to do it. Um, you did two years. I did two years. My sister is still serving her. Before years. I came here, I went to the army. Yeah. But yeah, I finished. Yeah. I still have like until January, but it's okay. I mean, I'm saying I'm uh, said the army because before or not. No one was like a, a surfer, like a, a surfer, professional surfer, like yeah. a, a professional one. And since the Olympics, they they recognize it more. 
Like now they actually think, oh, surfing is a sport, you know? They're still like, uh, you don't do it just for fun. People outside of Israel, it's Israel itself that needs to develop. But it's happening these days. Yossi is helping us, like, we're pushing it. Like, if it's a honey, it's a good shaper. I mean, we're pushing it to to be bigger and we're we're making stories. We're making stories and showing stories. Stories and history. Stories and and then someday there will be history, yeah. You made a history though. Man, I'm part of history. I didn't yeah. make it. Oh, come on. I, I see it part of it. She made it. Part of it, part of it. So what was it like for you to walk in your sister go to the Olympics? I don't like really really God. <laughs> nah. I didn't really realize, you know? Like when she called us, like it, I, it was in Japan and I was injured so I couldn't come. She's Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, yeah, she called us FaceTime and she was like, everybody was screaming and we're like, hey, what, what's going on? Oh, yeah, I qualified for the Olympics. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you qualified? Man, you took me sometimes to understand that it was... I told you, I didn't do it in the course. Yeah. I didn't. remember this. Yeah. Like, you guys are realized all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. But it was amazing, huh? I mean, it was... It took it a while for you to, to I mean, Leon qualified two, two, one month before the Olympics, but Anat did two years before. So I and was then like, COVID uh, came in and everything, yeah, everything changed. So I, I saw the pressure, you know, because like uh, the news always like interviewing her and the I, pressure. I didn't thought the Olympics would happen, to be honest. Like, yes. I think COVID was like, would mess everything up. I was very surprised then. Yeah. But it was it was amazing and hard, very hard. There was so much pressure um, building up, and then my my the coach that I was coaching in the Olympics said it feels like somebody beat you up and then you woke up the day after and everything's fine. Like something extremely like important happened and then you're like, oh, that's it. <laughs> and it takes some time to like take it in and. Um, I know it's the first time uh, surfing is, was in the Olympics, and as an Israeli or as a German surfer coming to the Olympics, come on, man, who thought uh, somebody would go from Israel or Germany to the Olympics? And uh, yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, a good, there is a good end to it, but it was very hard to reach to that point, and you can't forget it. Like, I can never forget it. There was a really, very big, like, there was a lot of, like, before me that tried to get to that point, and I think without them, I, I wouldn't be here. And, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have a family that supports me. Uh, I years before that, I used to compete with my sister, but like, the only competitor we would, we still do. We, after a call, it would be like, if you win, you hang my wet clothes. If you win, you hang my wet clothes. Like, okay, whatever, and I, yeah, I'm happy to have like uh, the support I have, and without it, I, will, I I I can assure you, I would never be here. Would never like it doesn't it didn't matter how much talent I have, without the people, without like Yossi being here, without my dad, without everybody around here, like can tell you my boyfriend, like everything is building up to a point where you're like, okay, okay, I made it, but not not by myself. And, yeah, happy.
And then we just cruised around the old city, and she took us to meet a guy named Or Cantor, mm-hmm. who's a Middle Eastern artist and tattoo artist, painter. Uh, he runs a studio called Love Light Studios out of Tel Aviv that is this mix of, like, traditional Middle Eastern and Mediterranean symbolism and, like, psychedelic contemporary art. What? Uh, and it's... His work, it, it has this unique ability to where when you see it, and we talk about this in the episode, that you just know that it came from the Middle East. Like, it, it just has this feeling to it where you're like, that thing had to have come from the Middle East. And that was like, part of our conversation was about what it means in a, you know in this day and age to identify as a Middle Eastern artist or a Middle Eastern surfer or just a Middle Eastern person mm. and how they present that with a sense of pride and humility at the same time and how that affects their work as representatives of their region. Um, it was, it was probably one of the most like meaningful conversations that I'd had the whole season sitting down with or, and he, he gave me a little tattoo, a little, little, uh, uh, thing to remember, remember him by. What is that? You want to describe for our uh, listeners here? It's a mermaid. It's a little Mediterranean mermaid with an obelisk. Oh and a blaze, uh, but yeah, he he talked about how in Israel in general and in the Middle East, they look elsewhere for inspiration. They look to the West. They look to the Far East. Um, for him, it was a lot of like you know traditional American tattoos, and then a lot of Middle Eastern symbology came in later, and gave him this entirely new perspective on all of the sort of cultural traditions that he's you know was born from uh, and sent him on like an entirely new direction as far as his aesthetic and style goes. And as far as new artists that I've encountered, his work is gorgeous. It's like some of the most interesting um, work that I've encountered in a few years. And it was really, really, uh, it was a, one of the more meaningful moments for me to be able to sit down with Orr and, uh, and hang out. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation you had with Orr. Um, the guy seems super fascinating, and I'm now really curious about his artwork. Um, so yeah, let's let's just go right to that conversation you had with him. I'm Or Cantor. I'm from Israel. I'm 36 years old. I've been tattooing and surfing here my entire life. When I walked in here the first time, I picked it up immediately. I didn't realize it was your book until I started flipping through it. Uh, explain to me this. With prayer, a prayer for for peace in the Middle East. Um, what else can you pray for here? Um, I know it sounds cheesy and cliche, but we are here in Jaffa, um, old Arabic city. And we all live here, Jews and Arabs. Um, we all believe in coexist and there's not much, I think you can, you don't need to actually say too much about it. Um, you know, it's something that we all wish for. It doesn't, I, I, I don't think it's like, you know, Israel, it's a very politic place. Like the politics here are like, yeah, fucking insane. It's like, there's, either you're like left, line. there's like left or right. But I think like the end, like the end picture, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're like, lefties or like righties or like it's like basically everyone's like praying for peace so yeah. i made this book and i knew that oh fuck this thing 
And I knew that this book gonna uh, probably like most of the people who get stuff from me, mm -hmm. they're not from Israel. Um, so I knew that this book is gonna be widespread worldwide. So I thought that it would be just nice to open the book with the simple prayer that just fucking give us peace, man. Yeah. It's like, that's what we want, that's what we need. But in any conflict, everywhere, governments are the one who fighting. Um, here it's a little bit more like, kind of like, it's like going deeper here because you have two people claiming ownership of the same land. Yeah. Um, but, but, I, but I think it's like the, the bigger picture if you go and ask 99% of the people, it doesn't matter from which side, um, they will tell you it's like, no, um, we, don't, we just don't give a damn. Just like, let us leave. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's just all be together and, and that's it. Uh, so how did you get started doing tattoos? Um, I started doing tattoos actually. I don't, I, I don't know how, if I can say when or how I started to do tattoos because I was, um, tattoos came my way through surfing actually. I was the little grom um, at the beach hanging out with all the older guys. Um, and all the other older guys were like specific, like one guy called Jonathan, El uh, Jonathan Elkes. Um, he was like the badass guy. He was like a few years older than me. Um, and he was like, he was a fucking savage, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> he's like, he did like, you know, it's like he, he like took me and my friends like, all right, we're going to like sneak you in into the bar, like 14, like. We're gonna get you beers. We're gonna get you like to smoke, and 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 we're gonna hook you up with girls. Like that's what's gonna like that's what's up. And I was like, all right. We all need um, our lives. We're yeah, and and he got and he had tattoos, um, and he used to go to meet up with this like local artist, and get tattooed from him. And I used to join him, and I was like fascinated by it because I always I always drew, and and art was a big like big part of my life since forever because my dad is an artist um and yeah um so i used to go with him see him getting tattooed and i was like oh man it's like this is fucking it's like amazing it's so cool i want to do it so um the dude who tattooed him his name is guy guy weissman he lives in new york now um he actually he was the first guy who said like you know i think like, I think, I think you can do it one day because he saw how, how passionate, like the passion I had for it. Like I used to like wait until someone is going to get a tattoo, like someone from the older guys from the beach. So every time it's like, oh my God, are you going to get a tattoo with Guy? And I was like, yeah, I have to come with you. Like I, I have a few like sketches I want to show him. Um, and that's how I actually got like into the world of tattooing um, and then years passed and I I traveled to Australia when I was like 18 something like that um, and in Australia I I ended up in Byron Bay um, before it came nasty like today like the before, before Stab moved in <laughs> 
Before, no, before it became like the, the Instagram influencer capital of the world. Yeah, but it used to be like a sort of like dirty... Yeah, it was like hippie, like... like kind of punk rock city. Yeah, so I, I actually... Some hardcore scene. So I, I ended up in Byron for, for quite some time, um, and I started getting tattooed in Byron. It's like I used to go to the, like, to the tattoo shop, creative tattoo, and I was like, hey, I want to get tattooed. And I met, and I became friend with the apprentice at the shop. And he kind of like introduced me to uh, all the other guys at the shop. And I started hanging up, just like hanging at the shop all the time and starting to get like, all right, yeah. like what the fuck is going on? And um, did you like, were you aware of that like culture of like the, because I feel like there aren't that many like, apprenticeships anymore in the world you know like it's like where artists used to go and study from old masters um tattoo artists, you know, it like, depends it's like you know it's like the tattoo tattooing world is like it's changing like anything else i guess um it's like it's widespread um more accessible to anyone um good and bad out of it um it's more like um, there, there are apprenticeship in the world. It's like if you go into any traditional, if you go into any traditional tattooing shop, the, most of the chances you're going to find an apprentice over there. Um, but yeah, it's like I think these days, like there's a lot of people who just doing their own shit together, like uh, like alone, not together. So. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's good. Yeah. No, I think it's. I think it's a shame that we kind of like losing the old, traditional way of doing it because yeah. there's a lot of respect and and things you need to learn when you're actually doing tattoos. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I think it's just like I used to. I used to get so angry about like. Just thinking about it, it's like, what the fuck? It's like tattooing schools like popping out, like popping up like everywhere. And I used to fight it. I used to like trying to fight it, like writing about it and like posting about it on Instagram. Like, like, hey, stop that thing. It's like, that's like, it's not the way to do it. And it's like, but at the end, I think it's like everything is evolving. And um, as things become more popular and more kind of like less taboo, it's less underground. So there is more people going to like, try to get on like get on it like get in it like yeah, yeah of um, course. it's like any subculture nowadays you know? yeah you don't have any you don't have subcultures that's it yeah. i mean like any subcultures like if you have anything that's like if you have something that it's like cool and underground so the mainstream gonna pick it up and 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 turn it into a mainstream and yeah. that's it and then you don't have anything that is like subculture anymore and I think that it's probably a lot harder to develop your own voice and style in a space that's so saturated with people making art and doing tattoos. But your work immediately looks different than anybody else's work. And thank you. Uh, I'm very curious where all the influences came from, or who were your biggest influences with tattooing, or was it more just like your brain, the way it works? Um. I think the best way to explain it, it's actually I wrote it in the, like the second book I made about 
tattoos from the Orient, um, which is... When I started tattooing as a kid growing up in Israel, um, we, we live in a place that it's like so shadowed by the U.S. It's like we are protected by the U.S. and we are... We, we imitate everything that's happening in the U.S. Um, so I grew, I grew up wanting to do tattoos and I was like, I looked, I looked overseas, I looked to the U.S. and I was like, all right, I, I need to do it. Like, I need to copy everything that's like, it's like that. I want to be American. Like, I don't want to be American, but I, I just like, all right, that's what, that's what's up, you know? It's like, yeah. um, and I started kind of like getting into traditional, like American traditional tattoos. Um, but then I start traveling again. Um, and the more I traveled, I think, and I grew up a little bit, I mature, like I grew up with tattooing. It's like I started as a kid and I grew up with that. So that's how like my style, my style started changing. Um, as I grew up, I became more, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to say spiritual, um, but aware. All right. Um, Might be the same thing. Yeah. Um, so then I started looking like the like I started like going into the West, like you know, like with my style. All right, everything needs to be super Westernized. Um, and then I actually traveled to the U.S. and I started traveling in Europe. And then I set my gaze my gaze to another place, the Far East. All right. It's like magical, supernatural, mysticism, everything together, combining into like Buddhist art. And, and, and it, it just caught my eye, like it caught everything about me. And it's like, I need to do that. It's like, um, and I started getting really into like um, more like Eastern, Far East artworks and like um, Japanese and Tibetan and uh, all, like, mostly Buddhist and, and India, yeah. and a lot of like Hindu designs, which I really like. I really, I, I, I still take a lot of inspiration out of like the compositions and, and the way they design everything. Yeah. Um, and by that time, just like it's a long story short, but um, and after some years, I was just like, ended up doing American tattoos, um, European-looking tattoos, um, Japanese-looking tattoos, and everything. And and at some point, I think the more I grew up, I came to the understanding. Wait, I'm I'm not an American. I'm not a, I'm I'm not a European. I'm not a I'm not a Japanese or Chinese. I'm from the Middle East. It's like why I'm looking everywhere. It's like I, I've been looking so far. You know, it's just like. And I have everything, like, uh, everything I was looking for, it's fucking here. It's, like, just beneath my, like, beneath my feet. I was standing here, it's, like, the whole time. The, the holiest place on, like, in the world, you know? Just, like, you're looking, like, everywhere to get, like, spiritual images from, like, places that you want to kind of, like, imitate and, and create, like, something that will look magical, that will look things, but... It's only look, it, it wasn't real. It, it wasn't real for me. It was just like, 
I was just trying to copy other cultures. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, wait, why? Why I was like, I don't think I was ashamed or like embarrassed of who I am. But when you're growing up here, you always like, you, you don't want to say you're, you're like a Middle Eastern. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, no, we want to be like, we want to be like Europe. We want to be like America. Like, but no, we are actually in the middle fucking East. You know, that's, that's who, that's who we are. That's like who I am. And I ended up looking just like, I think it was like the, the biggest, like um, the happiest moment of my life. It was the moment I realized, wow, I looked at all my like recent works and I was like, wow, I can really see my home. Like I can see, I, I can see my home in my art. Um, and that's how I came, ended up doing um, like kind of like psychedelic Mediterranean tattoos. Most of my works now are like signed or referenced inside. It's like the Fertile Crescent, the entire area. It's like from Egypt to Israel, Palestine, um, Syria, Lebanon, Syria, uh, I said Syria, but um, Iraq, I Iran, it's like the whole area, it's like. Yeah, um, the cradle of civilization. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, that was the word, like the, the phrase I was looking for, the cradle of civilization. Um, so there is actually, you know that, you know the, um, the oldest tattoo shop in the world, it's, it's in Jerusalem. Really? The oldest tattoo shop in the world. Seven, like they've been in Jerusalem for like 700 years. They came from Egypt like fucking like 13,000 like um, years ago. Yeah. So they have like the shop, like it's the longest like shop, like the, the longest running shop. And longest running tattoo shop in the world. America, Americans understanding, myself included, of tattoo culture and Jewish culture is that it's forbidden and it doesn't. No, they, they are, they are actually Coptic, um, Coptic Christians that, from that Egypt. Forbid it. No, no, the tattoo shop. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, they are a family, the Razouk family. Yeah. Um, they are a family who actually doing tattoos for 1300 years outside of churches and they have a shop in jerusalem for like almost 700 years yeah. the you oldest yeah really? i did of course, of course. um <laughs> they use the same like they actually have some of the original wooden stamps mm -hmm. um they have like a car hand carved stamps of like coptic imagery um and you just like the Jerusalem cross and all this like um, iconic and symbolic um, images. And you just go there, choose one, they stamp you, tattoo you. That's it. And that's it. In and out. In and out. It's not about the art. It's not about nothing. It's about, it's a, it's, it's a marks. It, it's a sacred marks. Yeah. And it still exists here in Jerusalem this day. Like 2022, people are still doing sacred tattoos yeah. here. 1,300 years old. Yeah. Um, and it's happening here in Israel. And, and 
when I saw it, it's like I saw it, like when I saw it for the first time, I was like, what? Yeah. You know, like what? <laughs> like right there. It's it it's here. It's like happening here. Yeah. Not in not you don't need to go to fucking Borneo in Indonesia to go to the jungle and look for tribes that still doing like traditional tattoos. Yeah. You have it here. And and I think that like I think thanks to the Razuk family um, that opened my eyes, they opened my, they opened a new vision for me about how to do tattoos these days that are, that are just a bit more than something beautiful on your body. That have something that, that really have a little bit more meaning. But I do believe that it's like it's a beginning of something. I, I, I would like to see more people around here um, doing more native designs, like more native influence designs to create more Mediterranean cultured tattoos. I have I have a good friend from Haifa um, and he's like one of the best promising Palestinian tattooers in Israel. Um, and he's, he's focusing on like more traditional Palestinian designs and it's beautiful to see it. It's like, you can see that it's like, finally, he's like, he actually, I mean, he's smarter than me because he's just skipped the whole traveling around, like traveling and gazing like in other cultures. Like he knew straight away, no, I'm Palestinian. I want to do things that are like close to my tradition. And that's what he like. He's doing it, and he's not tattooing only like Arabs, Palestinians, or like he's tattooing everybody. It's like, and people like people getting tattooed by him, um, Jewish people getting tattooed by him. Not just because they don't even know that it's like traditional Palestinian. They just getting tattooed by him because it's beautiful and he's doing a good job. Um, so I think it's like he he nailed it. You know, it's like. He's like on the right track to do what I try to do. Um, and hopefully in like, you know, hopefully in like 50 years, it's like the, the, like people will like, people will get tattooed and like, yeah, that's like, like Mediterranean traditional tattoos. Or took us to meet Hani Ovadia who is an Israeli shaper who's been building boards out of Tel Aviv for about 20 years. He worked for Timmy Patterson for a little bit, shaped boards with Al Merrick, um, and famously is the guy who's responsible for all, for all of Tom Curran's skimboard designs. No way. So really? all those, those weird skimboard concepts he started working on while he was visiting Tel Aviv while they were filming for... The Promised, Promised Land? Land, yeah, with Matt Casolis, I think. Yeah. And uh, I remember that uh, movie. Yeah, that's wild. And so Hani, uh, he builds all types of different boards. He works with Orr on a range of like sort of alternative designs that also ha have a bit of Orr's creative direction as far as the art goes. They, they're same thing. They're, you look at it, I've never seen a surfboard in my life where I was like, oh, that surfboard came from the Middle East. <laughs> uh, and th they're definitely that. Um, I did bring home uh, a board from Hani. Really? What'd you get? I love this cool little twin pin, like sort of like mid-length 
fun board thing that has this little like double barrel channel coming through the tail and just like a good all around like mid length to travel with. I brought it straight back to New York. It's incredible how many fascinating characters uh, you have been able to include in this episode. It's uh, just amazing. And Hani here is super cool. I can't believe he got to shape for Curran. Those skimboards especially, which is just unreal. So this is a really cool conversation. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy. So let's just go right to it. So when you started shaping surfboard, did you ever imagine that you'd be shaping basically like completely conceptual skimboard surfboard for Tom Curran? First, I never thought they're going to be able to shape for Tom Curran. Second, I always was interested in, you know, different kind of boards, like for different rides. But, you know, when he came up with the idea, I mean, I was uh, overwhelmed because I didn't care if he wanted a truster or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's only to make a board for Tom Curran. And from there, it's, it's you know, I, I, I actually in the beginning, I was very spect uh, uh, spectacle about, you know, like, come on, skin board, what's going to happen? People like it, don't like it. And as I call it the journey of, with him uh, continue, I realized like how, how ahead of his time, you know, because he wanted to name this board 3031. Like they're from the future. Exactly. He says, this is what he's saying. He's saying in the year of 3031, everybody was going to ride these boards. He's, I mean, I think that people have this, this sense that he is like a joker, you know, that he's kind of like Bob Dylan, like he's trying to just fuck with people. Yeah. Like everybody just wants to see him ride a Black Beauty and do a cutback at J-Bay. It's like a band wanting, like they want to hear him play the Yeah, hits. exactly. But he's an artist. You yeah. You know what I mean? And he's, he's experimenting with feelings and shapes and designs that has probably been rattling around in his brain forever. Yeah. And he doesn't seem like someone that ever gets bored with surfing. And that's the biggest thing for me. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't think he gives a shit whether you like the way he looks on the board. It's whether he likes the way it feels and if he's enjoying exploring whatever the idea is that he's had in his brain. And to be able to collaborate with someone like that, I feel like it's like, I mean, it's like being in a band and having someone that's just like the most out there musician and you're trying to drum with them, you know, you're trying to keep exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. This is the same. This is the same. The same vibes I get. You know, it's like he all the time thinking. You know, like how to, because at the beginning we made all these edges very sharp, and you see, you resend them, and make them like a little bit softer. And you know, it's like every time there is something else. But you know, at the beginning I wasn't able to see the big picture, and he already were beyond it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and now catch up yeah and 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 you know it's it's timeless you know the the, the stories and the, the the amount of like uh knowledge and stuff like that i i don't say every, every all the coins coming up you know at the same time and i'm still like thinking of stuff he was saying and i realize it now you know like slowly but surely yeah i was uh actually i i to say i work with it's uh it's understatement for for them I, I got mentored by, <laughs> by uh, first uh, Michael Andrews uh, 
he's, he's like he's the one that actually from the beginning like given me the the bigger uh, uh, opportunity I mean I never worked for him or stuff like that but I was like able to hang out with him yeah. and to spend a lot of time with him in while he was shaping for Ripco in Oceanside yeah. uh, approached him wanted to learn how to shape or you were going there to work in a factory no, no, I was I just approached him. I mean, I, I, I went there after the army to visit some friends. Yeah. And, uh, and we turned out we had to go to Oceanside to do like something uh, around in the area. And we just, I just saw him and then we started to talk and they had a machine over there. And we started, to, I mean, he was hand shaping, right? But there was a machine over there and it, we started like, Chris Brost had a partner with, uh, I forgot his name. Uh, with uh, Brando. You know Brando from Powell's? Friend of Peralta, Stacy Peralta? Yeah, so he used to be a partner. They used to have the machine over there, so I was like thrilled by the machine, you know, the year is 2000. Yeah, you've never seen a shaping yeah. machine. Yeah, I never saw him. Yeah. So then I went in over there and he, he was, uh, Ripcar was renting a room for him over there. So we started like, to talk. It was him, I think, Steve Boyson and uh, Chris Prost. And um, and I started like, uh, I just went to him, you know, he was an Australian I and mean, it's different energy. And we started talking and, and he just let me in. And I mean, I, I turned out to be on a surf trip, on a shaping trip, you know, I was like every day, my friends dropped me off over there with him and I, they were in shapey, uh, surfing and everything. And I just spent all day with him. That's sick. So yes, I got to spend a lot of time with him and uh, with Timmy Patterson. I mean, he, he like really, I think he's like such a big influence. I mean, not only for me, I think for a lot of shapers and yeah, he's like, and, and it, it, and it seems like he it, doesn't care, you know, I mean, not doesn't care in a way, like in, in a bad way, he yeah. doesn't care. Like it just gives you, it, it just like flow, yeah. you know? As far as like the local scene here, like what's the average person coming in and asking for like ordering a custom surfboard from you? Like what kind of boards are people coming in and asking you for that are from here? First they're asking for 32 liters. <laughs> That's it, I want to Yeah, the, the first, the, the, I mean nowadays what they think, what they tell, what they're saying, it's liters. They yeah. don't talk about height, width or nothing, just how many liters is it going to be? And so for me, it's kind of like difficult and hard because I, to be honest, I believe that liters give you some something, but it's not, it's never can be the exact yeah. liters, you know? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that just because I'm hand shaping, I'm just saying that because I used to work with machines and I saw yeah. how do you, how it can, can't be exactly the same. And I don't think people realize that if you are hand shaping boards, start to finish, if you're skinning a blank and then shaping it, it's pretty impossible to go and measure the volume. You know what I mean? You're not going to go dunk it in water and see how much it displaces. You know, yeah. like you're just going off dimensions and feel and like natural gut instinct of whether it's going to float the person. Yeah, but this is this is what I believe. I believe in like, uh, you know, like under the arm test. This is this is what I learned. This is what I used to do. And this is what I until now. I mean, you're going to a shop, let's say you're going to one of the biggest shops. They got like all the brands and you got like the same brand the same size, five boards. You hold them, this is what the size you wanted, right? So you hold the board, one board, second board, third board, and you like only one, why? Just because this feel, yeah. right? 
and uh, and I don't think even machine shapes there like can be the exact volume because the only place where the volume placed it's on the computer before even you cut in the blank, right? And there is various of blanks, right? It can be uh, uh, comped, it can be uh, uh, stoked, it can be stringless, it can be, you know, epoxies, EPS foam. So I don't know. And if you were to like order, if you were to like look at this board's volume, it wouldn't tell you anything about it, but you can put that thing under your arm and immediately know everything you need to know yeah, about it. Yeah, exactly. Know? At least if you've put enough boards under your arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but today most of the people coming in and asking for, uh, I mean, I think there is, as far as uh, everybody believes in leaders, but there is an educational aspect that working because at the 90s, everybody was writing like high performance shoreboard, like very, very thin, very, very uh, narrow. And today people understand that there, there is no, there is uh, no anymore like a shoreboard. I mean, like, like exactly like 90s fishes, they are like grovelers, like the, the shoreboards of today, you know, like the grovelers. And, uh, and people acknowledge that and understand that they need a bigger boards, you know, and yeah. stuff like that. How, how much of, I mean, what percentage of your boards that you're shaping nowadays are like high performance short boards? I think it's uh, still around like 50%. Uh, still, yeah. Yeah, 50 or 40%. I'm kind of like, uh, I don't know, I, I got into, I got to be known like the high performance shaper. Yeah. You know, like. I think, and I think it's because I spend a lot of time with Timmy's. Because Timmy is, uh, even his uh, fishes or logs or whatever he's doing, yeah. it's high performance. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like he's, like the, he's got like a Ferrari in his mind, you know? Like everything is smooth, everything is clean, everything is like very, you know, like all the rails are so soft and clean. My name is uh, Hani Ovadia from uh, Jaffa, Israel. Uh, I've been shaping for... Let's see for like 20 years. So where'd you end up surfing? What were the spots like? What sort of breaks <coughs> and conditions are, are, are to be expected when going to surf in Israel? Well, first I should say, flying into Tel Aviv is one of the most intimidating things uh, that I've ever endured <laughs> as far as interrogation methods and uh, security. We actually missed a flight that we arrived literally five hours before the flight for wow. because of the interrogation process. Whoa. And if you're a surfer that has, you know, been to Indonesia or to countries with, you know, m with Muslim populations, they, they, you get sort of elevated in the, the queue as far as the interrogation goes and it's fucking rigorous. But you feel as about as safe as you can in an airport once you get through security, to be honest. Like, what are we talking about? Like rubber gloves? Or no, is no. it like... <laughs> uh, no, no, no. They're, they're much smarter than that. Uh, it's, um, it's this process that I'm sure that, you know, people have studied extensively of separating people, asking the same very simple questions five different ways mm. and waiting for a variable in the answers. Uh, so it was me, my filmer, my wife, who's my partner on the project, and uh, yeah, being separated. How long have you guys known each other? Oh, so how do you know this person? Oh, yeah. 
And it's done in this very casual Talmudic like way that you, you all of a sudden realize that you're being interrogated at first. You're like, Oh, this guy's nice. He's like asking me real simple, like easy questions. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're going to be there for a while. Uh, so yeah. Uh, allocate time, be prepared, have your documents in order, um, and be ready to under, you know, undergo a, a you know, a, system that is in place for a reason get your story straight people <laughs> <laughs> um and then yeah you get off the plane you get through security there's fairly decent public transportation the coast of tel aviv i mean the, uh, the coast of israel as you go north of tel aviv becomes a little bit more rugged um along that whole stretch there's rock jetties and beach breaks and slabs and reefs there's even a few point breaks um, largely you're looking at swell direction and wind depending on the season. Wintertime being the most consistent, say, from about January through the end of April. The QS is usually there in March, and they seem to have really good luck getting waves. When we were there, it was like the end of winter, but it was a very late winter for them and uncharacteristically like stormy. So we didn't really get to see like pumping Israel. We got pretty fun windswell during the contest we were there during the Netanya pro mm. yeah israel is not the first place i would go if you're wanting to like strike mission and score waves it's a place you should go because you want to go and see what it feels like to be on ground that has like biblical importance uh to be able to go on a surf trip to a place that people have been taking pilgrimage to for spiritual reasons from every different walk of religious life for fucking all of history uh, is a fairly unique experience. And we didn't get to film in Jerusalem uh, as we would have liked to just because it's such a delicate situation dealing with filming and all those historical yeah. buildings and all that stuff. But we got to go to Jerusalem and to the Dead Sea and to sort of feel what like real capital H history feels like. You know, I think in place in a lot of places, most of what you're witnessing is, you know, if you're lucky, a few hundred years old. But to sit there and see people like bobbing their heads against stone that has been there since Jesus was killed was surreal. It's wow. like a, it was a it was an experience that I was not prepared for. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be our behind the scenes yeah. story, basically. We, our car broke down <laughs> fucking 30 miles from civilization on the way to the Dead Sea. No. Uh, like two miles from like an Israeli and Palestinian checkpoint. Oof. And we had to leave the car on the side of the road and like squeeze into a like rescue vehicle that drove us back to Natanya and go back and get the car. It was, it was an adventure for sure. <laughs> and so if people want to go, um, go there, like what are the local economics? How expensive is it? What, what sort of trip, is, you know, in terms of going there out, what's that going to set you back? Israel is largely considered one of the most expensive places to visit in the Middle East. It's the exchange rates really hard. Um, everything sort of costs a lot. And, you know, even just places to stay and hotels will run you a, a good deal of money. Um, so it's definitely not like the cheapest surf trip. It's one that, it, you know, if you if you if you're on a budget, I would make it a quick like sort of caravan trip through and sort of try and drive and see as much as you can in a short few days and then get out. Um, 
but I will say that there's so many Israeli surfers that I'm sure would be happy to help put up some uh, some vagabonds trying to cruise through. If it, it's a place that if you had the luxury of time, I think that you would be very enchanted by the place for a long time uh, before you got tired of Windswell. Well, I mean, and if you are Jewish and you're under the age of 25, you can take advantage of your birthright, right. which uh, and they would basically pay for a trip there, which I did not take advantage of, unfortunately, when I was younger. I was uh, too busy chasing waves instead. Um, and, and otherwise, like what sort of, um, you know, what sort of people or places to, can we go to find more resources if we are going to go surf there? Yep. Where can listeners find that sort of information? Um, Arthur and the Clinica Surf Crew um, are probably your best bet. They've been like sort of the ambassadors to the Tel Aviv surf scene forever. And you can walk in the shop and get an Astro deck or a new custom from Matt Parker from Album or a Takoro or a JS. Like they are a very like mindful surf shop when it comes to being a resource for every type of surfer that exists in Israel, which is, I mean, I think that there is every category of surfer that you could imagine in Israel that you would find anywhere else on the planet. There's guys that are stubbornly still riding tiny little wafer thin high performance shortboards, even though it's <laughs> two foot and windy most of the time. And then you've got, you know, really stylish traditional longboarders and girls on fishes and, you know, little alternative boards. Um, there's like a very rich culture across the board um, as far as modern surf equipment and all of the sort of like token things you would expect in a thriving modern surf scene. And um, it's interesting that this is kind of Doc... Paskowitz's legacy in some ways that surf culture there is like really thrived you know and it really seems to, to be huge right like pretty crowded lineups would you say or super crowded that is one thing at least Tel Aviv if you drive you can find ways by yourself but the in Tel Aviv it almost feels like surfing is a social sport they surf together they are they battle each other for waves it's it, it feels more familiar I'm sure to someone from, say, San Clemente or from Sakurama than it would for someone from, I don't know, Western Australia. It feels much more condensed and like a community crowd, all ages, all ability levels, like all mixed together. A lot of surf schools as well? A lot of surf schools. Um, I think that it seems like Israel's become a bit of a destination for just European, like, let see more time. Uh, it seems like Israel has become a real destination for European beginning surfers from maybe landlocked areas mm -hmm. that are wanting to go somewhere where they're guaranteed to get fairly warm water, fairly predictably like unthreatening conditions. And with it being short period wind swell, there's just tons of waves. It's, it's, it might not be tons of quality waves, but you know, if you're a beginning surfer going out on a two foot at six second wind swell, you get a thousand cracks at these little waves. And so you see tons of kids and parents and, you know, moms and dads all learning how to surf at the same spots that say, you know, Yoni Klein, like the best surfer from Israel ever is like out trying to do air reverses. And it's like a totally normal scene. 
That's awesome. And uh, and how would you say, real quick, like the level of surfing is there? I would say that it's sim- it's comparable to say Southern California surfers are they're more enthusiastic than they are skilled. I would say, <laughs> but I was super impressed with how many good surfers there were on the days that the waves got good. There was a couple of young kids. This kid, one of the kids' name is John John. <laughs> uh, but there's a you know young generation of kids in their teens who are coming up that rip fully like modern repertoire of tricks as far as like high performance surfing goes. Um, yeah, really good longboarders, like standouts in all categories as far as I could see. Wow. It sounds like a, a really interesting place to go travel. It seems like something on a bucket list to go do almost like just, I think in general, everyone should kind of visit that area, that part of the world. And it, it seems like why not, uh, try to surf while you're there as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not. A religious person i have no like you know feelings towards any of the cultures that find that area so important but it's it was impossible not to feel the energy that has been put into that place through the centuries from all those cultures and you know i think most people would argue that it's the holiest ground on earth you know people that that take those uh those cultures seriously that that stem from that area and so, you know, I, there's, it's, it's like going to, I don't know, Tibet and seeing where the Buddhist monks live. Like it feels like, a, like one of those very rare sort of spiritual centers of the world, um, whether you're a believer or not, um, it's worth seeing. So listeners, uh, definitely worth checking out this episode. You can go to Red Bull TV to find this episode on... Uh, no contest off tour Israel edition. And uh, we will have be back uh, next episode at another secret location uh, that I am excited to explore with you, Ashton. Again, uh, thank you for coming on and giving us a little bit of that behind the scenes. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I, I'm stoked to have been able to, uh, to, to visit Israel. And I know that the whole crew over there will be listening to this. Uh, They know who they are. It's a a rad scene if you ever get a chance to visit. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll all check you on down the line soon. Did you go to the, did you go in the Dead Sea? We did. And did you float? I mean, we floated. Like, I didn't listen to anyone when they told me not to get any in my eyes. <laughs> I was like, how bad can it be? Like, it's a fucking lake. Like, I'm going to get, I'm going to go underwater. Oof. And I paid for that dearly. They have like, you know, in, in, in old like chemistry class, like classrooms. Yeah. Uh, they had the big emergency shower. Yeah. That just like is a, it's like fucking 60 gallons of water just trying to flush whatever's on you out. That's like the standard beach shower at the Dead Sea because I'm sure every little kid runs into the water like an asshole, just like I did, and comes out screaming with bloodshot eyes. Um, 